Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast, as we continue our first series, The Art of Healthy Longevity, in collaboration with Homerton Changemakers Programme at Cambridge University, and hand in hand with Iona, a digital healthcare company that I'm myself and a number of colleagues founded to enable people live longer, healthier lives. Now, today I have a truly fascinating guest. There are so many facets to this person that I hardly know where to begin. But suffice us to say in the offset is that he is a colleague, a friend and a mentor to me over many years. He started out life and qualified as a rheumatologist and trained as an epidemiologist. He's professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College Hospital in London. His main area of focus of research has been twins and then the microbiome and he's got a keen interest in food. He's also an author. Not only has he published 900 academic papers, but he's published four, almost five books, one in press. And we will be talking and taking a dive into Spoonfed, his most recent book, which I had the pleasure um, to read over the last few days. And honestly, I can recommend it. It's a very easy read, very enlightening and truly inspirational. And if as if that wasn't enough, um, he's also a disruptive um entrepreneurial researcher taking his ideas from bench to bedside. And of course, he has been the recipient of a number of awards, Fellow of the American Academy of Sciences and recently recipient of an OBE in the Queen's Honours List for his work, which probably he's most renowned for in the public eye over the last year for his COVID symptom tracker, which really, really has helped so many people, myself included, every day logging in. So join me in welcoming Professor Tim Spector. Tim, welcome. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you and thank you for giving up your time because I know how incredibly busy you are. And um, even just spending a few hours, although I know you, I, I couldn't believe the volume of work that you've done over the years. And, you know, how have you got to be a writer? I mean, this is all about the art of healthy longevity, a play on the word of art. And we're interested in your writing. And you have been an academic writer and now you are a um a, a mainstream publisher for books as well. So where does all the writing, the inspiration for writing come from, Tim? I guess having written lots of academic papers, uh, I was used to sitting down with a blank screen and or a bit of paper and, and, and starting from scratch and building a story and giving results and, and doing it that way. And epidemiology is, is a bit of a description of, of real life uh, about what's happening. And so that that was a, a, I guess, a discipline about being able to deal with the blank page, which uh, is a major block for most people. And then uh, I was on a skiing holiday um, years ago, about 20 years ago, and bumped into a guy called Neil Jordan, who's a famous Irish uh, writer and uh, screenplay Hollywood director. And he said, "You, your work you're doing in Twins is so fascinating after we'd had a dinner conversation, you should write a book about it. And really, that was the sort of inspiration to at least give it a go. I actually had a few patients that I that I was chatting to who, who were writers, and they just said, oh, well, this is what you do. You just write a four-page summary and send it around, see if anyone is interested. And and I did it as a bit of a joke, and it, it, it bit. And then uh, I, I got writing my first book, and I found that I enjoyed it. I wasn't very good at it then. I think it's an art you get better at as you as you go on. But 
the idea that it was trying to communicate this really complicated science to people in a fun, amusing way that would make it, you know, part of their lives was was actually very empowering. So I persisted with it and finally got an agent that, you know, put me in touch with the right publishers and the right editors. And so you ended up being part of a team. And that's really how it evolved. And, and each book has, has evolved in a way that uh, has taken that experience on. And so you, I think you do get better at it. And so you know how hard it is when you start, which is the nice thing about doing your first book is you don't know how difficult it is. Yeah. And you equated it to childbirth, didn't you? <laughs> um, the agony <laughs> and the ecstasy. Right, yeah. Once you do it, you never want to do it again, but we all do it again. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You forget the bad moments and uh, remember the, the highlights, but that's uh, human nature. But yeah, no, it's it's been important. And, and I think in a way, I've also used books, uh, researching books as a way of changing my field. So, that as I switched from one to another, I would go off somewhere and either write a very big grant in a new area or uh, prepare for writing a book so that I would have a really broad grasp of that area before I, I went into it. And I, I found that particularly helpful and really you know, useful because the danger of most people in medicine, most scientists, is that you get bogged down in um, small minutiae and it's very hard to pull yourself back and, and see a bigger picture. And that way, I felt by seeing the big picture, you, I could pick the op, the, rest, the good opportunities and, and leave the bad ones. Mm. So you started off writing for fun. It was an experiment, a curiosity, then writing to educate yourself. And, and how about now with your latest book, Spoonfed, you really are writing to educate not just patients, but doctors and actually uh, public providers and government, might I say, as well? Yes. I mean, the, the, the last book, you know, has taken it to a new level. And as I was researching it, I, I sort of got angrier and angrier that the way that food and nutrition and health have been portrayed and that all these vested interests in providing us with probably the wrong information. And so it has ended up being a book about, you know, what we all need to know to change the system so that we can get back on track and and all start eating the right food and growing the right food again and not just be taken along by the food industry or vested interests in government or health. So that that really, yeah, it, it's become more political in a way. But I felt that rather than just writing another academic paper on uh, obesity or nutrition, actually you have more impact if you can reach lots of people through ideas in a book and spread that word that people, everyone needs to be more educated in what they eat and understand more about food. And that's really the my my current theme at the moment is trying to get everybody involved because the only way it's really going to change is bottom up. We can't, governments just aren't going to do this for us. Yes. And one of the things that came out of um, reading your book that I noted was we have to be educated and that's a dominant message. But actually, there is a lack of evidence and you're trying to address this with your research, aren't you? Particularly the PREDICT study. Maybe you might want to um, take a step back and tell us a little bit about your how you segued into food, your interest in the microbiome. Tell us what the microbiome is to start off and then how you got interested in doing research in food science. Right. Well, go back about um, 20 years when I started doing twin studies and I was interested in how twins are all identical twins, always more similar than their non-twins and pointing out new diseases that people hadn't thought about that were genetic and then discovering some genes for that. 
But then the last 10 years, I was more interested in why identical twins were different. And that's when I came across the big factor that showed a difference between them. And these are identical twins who are like genetic clones, identical DNA in all, every cell in their body. Any difference between them must be quite important. And it turned out that the microbiome, this community of bugs in their, in their gut, was really quite different in identical twins. And to my mind, could suddenly explain why one twin got cancer, the other one didn't, one, one was depressed, one was happy, when their genes were identical and often their upbringing had been up identical. So to me, this, that, that was the aha moment. And then everything else really came from that because to understand the gut microbiome, you then had to understand food and what, what foods were good and bad for it and how that then affected your health. But having this understanding that we'd discovered a new organ in our bodies, the gut microbiome, which is really trillions of chemical factories producing all these really good chemicals for us to keep us in, in equilibrium if we feed them right and to keep us in the right mood and keep our immune systems in tip-top shape, help us fighting cancer, help us to stay uh, as slim as we can be, and, and all kinds of other signals we don't even yet understand. That became a, a critical part of understanding how nutrition and health fitted in. It was the bit in the middle, if you like, the missing part of the puzzle. Also, I, I then found that once in, in the, my previous book, The Diet Myth, once you'd introduced the gut microbiome to people, they could actually have a, a philosophy about eating that was very different. You know, if you didn't have that knowledge, it was like, you know, you didn't have a soul. It was just you're eating just for fuel because some person said it was good or bad. But suddenly it gave people a, a real philosophy of eating that I think uh, hundreds of people have, have written to me saying how it actually just that message alone helped uh, change their their family's habits, their habits. And, you know, is something that is, has great longevity. And is this your concept of a diverse diet in the diet myth when you say your philosophy to food? Yes. I mean, it, before we get into the details of it, it's more the idea that when you eat, you're not just eating as fuel mm -hmm. in some non-specific way. And it's not just eating in terms of fats and sugars and protein. If you think of your eating predominantly to keep your gut microbes happy mm -hmm. and they will break down your food into the right chemicals and they will in turn produce all the right chemical signals in your body. And the most important thing in, in your whole assessment of your diet is, you know, how are my microbes going to feel? Actually, it seems to work for everything else. And that's really the – and it also tends to work for the planet. So everything that's good for your gut microbes tends to be pretty good for you know, reducing global warming in the planet. Mm. And that means all the type of diets and foods that mean that you can have a diverse set of gut microbes, uh, that they are lots of different species rather than just a few. And that way they're healthy. And, and yeah, specifically, you go. I, I, I go into the various things that help that. But the number one thing is eating lots of whole food plants mm -hmm. and aspiring to get 30 different types of plant in your diet every week that aren't refined and that that's the sort of cornerstone of it and that if you do that it doesn't really matter what else you do 
your gut microbes will be happy enough for, for you to uh, continue and they'll be robust enough for you to go and have your KFC or your burger, you know, once a week or whatever it is. It, I think that's the key thing. We're not trying to say don't do this, but this is the new base. It's not about getting your meat and two veg or your cutting, removing fat from your diet or mm-hmm. counting calories. It, it's it's about this new sort of philosophy about let's get this whole range of foods that we've sort of given up eating back into our diets. Let's make it more interesting, more diverse, more variable. And we can actually also do that and enjoy food even more uh, because all of us get into food ruts. Yeah, well, what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, the gut is central to a lot of our health and our longevity and central to that is the food we put in it. So one's body is one's temple. And this is the new philosophy. It's it's really, really important. It's a lifestyle change, really, isn't it, Tim, that will actually benefit the individual and society and indeed, as you touched on, the planet. I think it is. Yeah, I mean, it's realising that, you know, just as on the planet, we're one part of it, even our bodies, you know, there's a a microcosm in there is an evolution. We're like our own version of Yellowstone Park or, you know, everyone plays a role in keeping it all together. So it, it it's a sort of ecological type of idea that I think in the, in the current world makes sense. And I think things like COVID have brought it into focus because we know that you know, the people who do badly with COVID end up having poor diets and they're more overweight, they've got more chronic sickness, all these things that reduce the immune system. And that's an extra reason to be eating is things that we hadn't thought about before is actually good quality diet actually helps your immune system through your gut microbes rather than through some vague direct action through, you know, antioxidants or some other theories that uh, never got very far. Well, it sounds like such a simple message, but because it's simple, it can be widely applicable. And and if we all play our part, we can actually change the world. And of course, this podcast is in conjunction with Homerton Changemakers. So really, you are giving a very strong message that the future of one's own body and health, which is personalised and the world is in our own hands. And do you subscribe to this philosophy like yourself? I, I think you do because I've had breakfast with you where you have checked what you should be eating and shouldn't be eating. But can you tell our viewers like how you apply this to your day-to-day life in terms of food choices? My diet and food choice have changed a lot in the last uh, 10 years. Previously, I had what I thought was a healthy diet for most doctors. I used to have a breakfast of probably muesli and a small orange juice and uh, possibly some low-fat yogurt or skim milk and tea. And I would, my lunch would be a, a tuna sandwich on brown bread with perhaps some crisps, you know. And that, you know, we all do the get into this habit when we don't have much time. And it turns out that when I started looking into my own personal health, that was very much the worst thing for me. Those things gave me huge sugar spikes. Hmm. So I, I've I've changed that both from the point of view of my gut microbes. So I I, I eat in a way that's much healthy enough for my gut microbes, but I've also eaten for my own personalised metabolism because of the I was really piloting all these studies, the predict studies before they happened. So I was wearing a, a continuous glucose monitor for months on end, and probably know more about 
my reaction to food than you know nearly anybody. So that was that was a bit of an eye opener for me. But generally, I've for the last ten years I've looked after my microbes. So it's trying to get my thirty plants a week. It's having lots of fermented foods every day. It's having brightly coloured fruits and vegetables, nuts, seeds, dark chocolate, olive oil, and even a glass of red wine. And that um, seems to be working. Um, I'm uh, I'm still alive, and uh, I managed. You know, I managed to lose about eight kilos in weight over the last 10 years. Well, you also told me when you measured your biological age, you were, was it 14 years younger than your your chronological age? Is that right? That's right, yes. Um, and I have done other experiments in the last year to see uh, how it might have changed the stress of COVID. But it, uh, I, and I took a very low-dose uh, metformin tablet which is a half dose of, 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 a, of a tablet that's given to diabetic patients. And um, that also, I knocked another four years off my off my life. So I, I got even younger. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I love that test, as you can imagine, you know, yes. uh, if, if it had gone the other way, I, if it had gone the other way, I probably wouldn't talk about it. But, um, <laughs> uh, uh, that's, uh, but I definitely feel better this way of eating. And I, I've also done things like I do more intermittent fasting. I skip breakfast a couple of days a week and uh, I have uh, longer fasting intervals. So these things, as well as being good for my metabolism, are now also shown to be good for your gut microbes. And and this is a general philosophy. As soon as something's shown to be good for microbes, I, I give it a try. If I can get it to fit in with my life, I'm not going to make huge sacrifices, you know, in order to do this. But I I think it's important that I experiment myself before giving this advice to other people. Indeed. And, and, you know, perhaps the microbiome is key to longevity is what you've articulated there, isn't it? By looking after your microbiome, you are looking after and adding, giving yourselves a few extra years of higher quality of life, be it if you don't have a disease, but also in people who may have chronic diseases, be it diabetes, obesity, rheumatoid arthritis, all the diseases we see in clinic all the time. Yeah, exactly. And I think the message is really important because it's an upbeat message because having worked in genetics for most of my career, it was, apart from telling people, oh, you should get screened early, you might have this disease, it was very hard to motivate people given they had a, a gene they couldn't change. And I think we overplayed the role of genetics in in this and underplayed the role of food, diet, and ultimately the gut microbiome, which actually gives a much more optimistic, empowering message that you can change your your destiny if you if you change your your gut microbes well you told us how you'd been measuring your sugar spikes etc now what will you say to the average person who's listening who doesn't have the ability to do the the research on oneself like you do i mean and is this what join zoe is all about maybe you could take a little time to explain how the average person can actually look at their response to food in terms of lipids sugar rises yeah and what i'll do is i'll go back to predict studies which is what um so about four years ago a couple of entrepreneurs george and jonathan came to see me at one of my book talks and said we love what you're talking about the gut microbiome we want to combine that with personalized nutrition you know do you want to help us form a company and i i sort of said yes but you know you've got to come up with a lot of money because we need to do real studies first i'm not just going in and doing it on marketing 
And amazingly, they came back uh, a couple of months later and said, well, we've got the money. We've got a few million dollars raised. We can start the study. And I was, you know, I said, wow, someone wants to pay and do research. Fantastic. So they paid for this enormous study of a thousand twins where we gave them all identical meals and put glucose mon- continuous glucose monitors on them, took their blood in a day in the hospital, you know, every hour, gave them uh, measurements of their fats in their finger after a meal, and they logged all their food and they gave us a stool sample to measure the microbiome. Many other stuff as well, but that's the gist of it. And because of that, we then worked out for the first time that everybody is unique in their response to food normal people these are normal people these are not people with diseases so all of us when given a standard muffin or milkshake will react differently in terms of our sugar spikes or our fat spikes or our inflammation and once you realize that and that difference was about eight to ten fold that's a real wow moment because it just says that all this one size fits all advice is nonsense and that every calorie is equal is also nonsense because these spikes are associated with a whole range of uh, diseases like heart disease, uh, type 2 diabetes, and putting on weight. And they're also associated with things like hunger levels and feeling tired. So if you can work out which foods to avoid giving you these spikes just by simply swapping them for something else, then effortlessly you can get your food in tune with your body and that's really been the the principle behind the company zoe that funded these studies first in the uk and then several thousand others in the us with uh, mass general hospital and harvard and has been selling the product now for three months in the us so we've managed to change the science into something that everyone can do as a home kit and just on the internet and people are are using this method and they're finding that they as well as losing six or seven pounds in weight in a month just by changing the choices of foods not counting calories at all but more importantly though if they're feeling healthier in terms of energy levels and uh, feeling less hungry so i think this is you know this is the tip of the iceberg of this rev- revolution going forward about how we use this new technology, big computing, algorithms, handheld apps, all together to, to really change the way we think about food and not just believe old-fashioned advice that, you know, an apple is always good for you or you, know, you, you someone can eat ex- exactly this amount of food every day and be fine because mm. we're all so different. And it's, you know, most of us know this, but have never really questioned it. But how accessible will it be, Tim? I mean, can I go out and download the app now and sign up or, you know, will it be accessible to the general population? Well, at the moment, you can only buy it in the US and uh, you can go on the website, joinzoe.com and and you can go on and get on a wait list and and buy it. It's coming to the UK probably uh, in about six months time. And there is a wait list there you can get on and uh, try and get be one of the first to get it. So we're def- we're scaling up big time because it's been so successful, and you know we're, we've raised another uh, load of money to to let us do that. So I think it's definitely coming, and there will probably be other companies as well you know, imitating this. 
So I think it, it is the future that people will start to monitor their own health themselves. They won't have to go through doctors or hospitals uh, in order to do this because it's this should be part of everyone's education themselves. Uh, you shouldn't just outsource it to some third party to tell you what to eat. You know, I think you have to be part of it, part of this educational uh, journey, which also involves things like sleep and exercise, which also are key to your sugar peaks and your fat peaks as well. So it's it's a more holistic approach to uh, to medicine than we've ever had before. And I think it it's very exciting because we'll also be building up this huge database of very quickly in hundreds of thousands of people's health, diet, data, and microbiome, because everyone who goes in the program is actually signing up for to you know be part of the research. Mm. And presumably, this would start once one's gut was maturing, or is it something a child should be taught to do? You know, eventually, when it becomes you know more mainstream. We're experimenting it in children, and, and there is there are groups certainly looking at uh, children at risk of type 2 diabetes and giving them glucose monitors. And type 1 um, diabetes, they do use these monitors in children. So I think early in life, it, this might be useful. But I think let's first get enough data in, in adults to really understand the process and see how age uh, affects things because you need to get enough people in the groups to make these predictions possible so that's why the minimum number really was a thousand mm -hmm. which is 20 you know 20 times bigger than most nutrition studies and that's why really people haven't looked at these differences between people they've only looked at the means or the averages and that's why you know people when they're told to go on a ketogenic diet some people hate it and some people love it why people on low-fat diets, you know, half of them do really badly and gain weight. It's just because up to now, we've never thought there might be different responses, and yet it's so obvious. We only got to look at the way we respond to milk or coffee or alcohol, yeah. you know, that, that we should be reacting this way. It's just we've been told, you know, there's one good way and one bad way, and that's it. Yeah. And we, you and I both see so many patients in the clinic. We try and encourage them to lose weight, be it they need a joint replacement. And no matter how little they eat, I have patients who say, I just can't lose weight. So potentially, if they had the ability to monitor the right foods for them and personalise it, they might be more successful with weight loss programmes. Well, I think we've learned now that calorie restriction doesn't work other than in the first few months, because you will rebound and often you rebound worse than you were because that's the way your body's set up. But if you can basically get in tune with your body and swap the foods for the ones that best suit you so that it's not inflammatory, it's not irritating, and at the same time you're building up your gut microbes, the idea is you're building up these three elements in your diet, you know, reducing sugar peaks, reducing your fat peaks, and improving your gut diversity and health then those three together gives you a long-term basis to do this permanently, not just a short fix. So this means that this will work over years, not just the usual diet that works over weeks. And I think that's that's really crucial. And, and I think it gives people a, more, a greater feeling of control over their own bodies as well when they can see directly what the effects of, of these foods are uh, through these gadgets and these wearables and having an algorithm that they can use 
when they go shopping, you know, and they can scan foods and things like this and just say, you know what, just try this one instead of that one. It's never saying never, ha- never have this. It's, it's just giving a, a healthier choice or alerting them this one is ultra processed and, and therefore it's going to give them a rapid sugar spike. Hmm. And are you hopeful that potentially we can change behaviour so much that it impacts on the prevalence of various chronic diseases? So at the moment, the model is you have your, you know, special diet for cancer, special diet for cardiovascular. It's quite in vogue, isn't it? You know, different disease related diets. But actually, if we change behaviour towards eating, that potentially it will reduce chronic disease in the first instance. So prevention rather than cure, shall we say? Yes, well, it's well known that Diet is the number one modifiable risk factor for mortality, cancer, and heart disease, plus all, all the chronic diseases uh, combined. So it's it's a no-brainer, really, that if you can just change dietary habit by a small amount, you can reduce the burden of these other diseases by a large amount. And that's what we will be working on insurers and 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 health agencies to say, listen, you should be embracing this and so we can make it mainstream, get the price right down so people can take these tests once a year rather than wasting money on screening people's cholesterol, for example, or sending you know, a, a fraction of people to uh, dietitians when they've got some particular problem. You know, When you realise the amount of money that uh, countries like the UK are, are spending on just obesity and type 2 diabetes, the billions that are spent in healthcare, it makes no sense to spend only 1% of our total R&D budget on health in this area. Mm. And clearly people listening now will want to know how they can help with this effort. And I know you mentioned to me that you have a charity, the Chronic Disease Research Foundation, which is crowdfunding. I mean, we'd like to encourage people, if they would like to be part of this greater initiative, um, to, to help expedite the research so we get the answers quickly and, you know, we can, we can live longer, healthier lives. And how would they go about donating to that, Tim? Well, simply going on to the, the Chronic Disease Research Foundation website, um, which uh, is cdrf i think it's .org.uk we'll we'll Uh, put up a link after this podcast so it'll (laughs) make make it easy but is this something that you run are you the um the the advocate and are you the the face behind this so when people donate they know it's going directly into the researchers who are doing the work for this yes it's a specific charity that was set up about 25 years ago uh to fund essentially the, the, the work of the department and uh, generally this involved the twins and, and, and all the insights that we've got through the twins and the current work is really focused around the gut microbiome and health and understanding that and there's a current appeal on at the moment uh, through people who are using the COVID symptom study app that we're just about to initiate that people can donate to look at the long-term health effects of COVID and look at the effects of diet, which means also looking, you know, whether good diet can mitigate those bad effects, et cetera. So it's all very focused research uh, so people can really have a say in where their money goes as opposed to these larger charities where you never quite know where things are going. And we've been successful so far. So uh, for COVID, we raised about one and a half million pounds and have projects on lot looking at 
effects of the gut microbes on long COVID, et cetera, and um, many other projects ongoing, particularly on aging and, and diseases. So, yes, uh, all donations generally great received. Well, that's good. I'm sure people will want to. And we've focused an awful lot on the food and the gut microbe and, you know, your writing. But one of the things that you touched on very briefly when you were talking about um, Join Zoe was, yes, it's the food and it's sleep and people's generalised wellness. And I wanted to ask you what you do for your own wellness. Now, we, we've heard that you would pay attention to your diet, better so over the last 10 years. We know you write for fun and enjoyment and also as a living as well. And that's a counterbalance to maybe the stresses of being a very busy researcher doing your books. But what else do you do to preserve your own wellness? I mean, do you sing? Do you dance? Do you meditate? What's the secret of 14 years gained back on your longevity, Tim? Well, I'm pretty active physically, so I like sports. Uh, I cycle to work, and in in lockdown, I'm still managing to cycle, you know, for half an hour to an hour a day. And uh, I ski and ski tour in winter, and I swim a lot in summer. Uh, do long sea swims and things like that. So I'm I'm an active person. Needs to be doing something every day. And since the age of 18, I, I've actually been practicing meditation. So twice a day, I'll do um, 15 to 20 minutes meditating, which uh, I found has really helped me. Initially, I did to just keep focused because I was a very unfocused 18-year-old uh, to get me through medical school. And But I found it now a very useful way of, of dealing with stress and just taking time out. So and it's not as fashionable as mindfulness, but there's not much difference really between the, these different methods. So I think it's, it's a combination of that. And, and of course, uh, trying to enjoy myself and not take life too seriously so that, you know, you can always have the fun bits out of it. Mm. And, uh, and that's particularly important at the moment as we're all facing lots of grim news. Uh, I'm always trying to look forward to my next holiday or trip somewhere. So I'd, I'd say, um, you know, in that respect, I'm, I'm an optimistic person. Well, I think you're very holistic as well. I mean, you, we've heard so much about your writing, about the food, about how you yourself deal with your own wellness and how it has translated into longevity of you. And, and hopefully when you take all of these ideas that you've learned about, written about and translate them from bench to bedside, that will translate into an improved um, outcome for our patients, but society at large. So I think we've learned so much from you today, Tim, and I want to thank you so sincerely for joining me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you to all my listeners who've tuned in today. It's been a real pleasure. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to Tim Spector's story as much as I have. And if you would like to give us any feedback, we'd love to hear from you at hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. And also join me next week for Siraj Tharkar, who is a very interesting gentleman who runs a sustainable food company and has been delivering food through his company over many generations, since 1815, in fact, to local health authorities. So we're going to be talking to Siraj about putting some of these new ideas and philosophies into practice. And perhaps even there's a collaboration between Joy Zoe and his company, Truewells. So thank you so much to all my listeners and don't forget to join in next week. Bye for now.